Welcome to the CCF Iowa podcast. We're continuing on in our For Everyone series with Matthew 21. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So at the very beginning of this passage, we see that Jesus is coming from Bethpage on the Mount of Olives and heading into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So that means that he was coming to Jerusalem from the east, from that specific direction. I want you to hold on to that thought. So this is the first time that that Jesus is in the Judean region and that he's teaching there. And Judea is, is where Jerusalem is located. It's a very significant area to the Jews. Uh, it also it is a really hard area for the Romans to rule. And so there's been some different things that have happened. So Herod the Great who's the guy in charge when, when Jesus is born. Uh, then Jesus' family flees to Egypt because of Herod. And then after Herod dies, they come back and settle in Nazareth. And so when Herod dies, he splits up the kingdom of Israel into uh, like three different territories and gives them each to his son. Now the Judean territory, he gives to his son Archelaus. And Archelaus actually only lasts two years ruling over Judea. Because it's such a hard region to, to effectively rule over, to, to keep essentially these rebellious Jews in check. And so Rome, which is kind of the actual governing body, but they install puppet rulers to help things go easier for them and to help their people, the local people feel like they still have um, like some powers and some authority over their own lands. Uh, Rome says, hey, Archelaus, you're not cutting it. These people are still trying to revolt. They're trying to rebel. Um, this ain't going to work. And so they bring in a guy known as Pontius Pilate to be the governor of that region. And Pontius Pilate is kind of known to be a, a really effective military leader. He's kind of a, a bulldog of sorts in government. Um, he's a guy you don't mess around with. And, he, and he's not going to take anything from anybody, and he's going to make sure that his force and his power and the power of Rome is felt in that region. And so when Pontius Pilate comes to town, he doesn't set up in Jerusalem. He doesn't really want to live there. It's a very Jewish city, and he's a, a Roman. And so he wants to hang out somewhere that feels a little bit more like Rome. And so he ends up living in Caesarea, which is on the sea. 
uh, which is the city that Herod the Great built and dedicated to Caesar. And so it feels a lot more like a Roman place. There's this really awesome palace that's there. And so Pilate just says, I'm just going to live in Caesarea. But there's one time a year the pilot always goes from Caesarea and travels to Jerusalem because he wants to be present in the city and remind people of who really is the power and authority in their region. He does this during the time of Passover. And the reason he does it during the time of Passover is because Passover is essentially a festival, a celebration, a remembrance of the time that Israel was freed from Egypt and liberated from slavery. And so it's essentially the idea of, well, there's all these Jews that are gathering to celebrate, they're having big feasts and festivals, that celebrating their freedom and independence, and I don't want them getting the idea and getting riled up while they're having their holiday, remembering that they were an enslaved people who were freed by God. I don't want them remembering that they're still kind of enslaved right now and Rome has rule over them and they're not truly ruling over themselves like they would prefer like they their scriptures have have said that God it's always God's intent it's God's promise is that those people would be free in the land of Israel and so Pontius Pilate says that's when I'm going to show up and make sure they remember who's really in charge and they don't try to step a toe out of line and so he comes into town and he brings this huge army military processional with him he rides in on a white stallion and so he's just having this impressive show of military force of of what it looks like to be under rome's thumb this is what it really means this is just a reminder you can still have your passover you can still have your nice feast just don't get any ideas because we're ready to to bash skulls you know it's that kind of attitude that Pontius Pilate rides into town with and Pilate um because of where he's coming from on the coast he comes into Jerusalem from the west and he's riding in from the west uh, now you remember that I mentioned that Jesus when he comes in he's coming from Bethpage Mount of Olives he's coming in from the east and Jesus comes in with his disciples this small band of 12 people who probably didn't have very much, um, you know, like the only things they possibly bring with them on this journey are the clothes on their back. They would very much represent a, a poor, in shambles looking type group instead of a strong military processional. And Jesus comes riding in on a donkey instead of a powerful white stallion. And so Jesus maybe at the very same time, maybe even the very same day, is coming in on the other side of Jerusalem than Pilate would have come from. And they're, you know, potentially heading into the city at the same time. And such a stark contrast. Pilate with his legions of, of soldiers and Jesus with uh, his handful of students riding a white stallion, riding in on a donkey. And so this is what it looks like when Jesus has this triumphal entry. And yet the people that are gathered, that are on that road, that they're themselves heading towards the city of Jerusalem, they see what Jesus is doing and they, and they recognize it. And they start waving their palm fronds and they, they shout Hosanna. Uh, the Matthew text doesn't mention palm fronds, but the account in John um, says they're waving palm fronds, which is why we do our Palm Sunday thing. 
So they're waving their palm fronds and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, because they see what Jesus has done. They caught the reference before Matthew wrote it down of Zechariah 9. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Matthew very directly quotes and points out, hey guys, I want you to be thinking Zechariah. And I think sometimes um, that's that's a thing we overlook. Or at the very least, we get the Zechariah 9.9, 9, the, the direct verse that Matthew quotes, and we go, cool, it's referencing a prophet. It's one of those messianic prophecies. And, and we just kind of jot that down. Another thing that Jesus fulfilled that that just shows that Jesus is the Messiah. And, but the thing about Zechariah is when it's written... It's not necessarily referring to these as messianic prophecies. It's okay that we file that away and we say that's something that Jesus fulfilled and it's a really cool thing that happens. But, but I think there's a reason that Matthew's pointing to Zechariah. And it's not just for Zechariah 9. It's to take, turn your attention to more of that book of the Bible. And so if you look forward from Zechariah 9 and you get towards the last chapter of Zechariah, which is 14... You can even find other interesting things that, that that book of prophecy is saying that I think possibly the crowd there grabbed a hold of. And so it says in Zechariah 14, 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. See, Zechariah 14 has a direct mention of the Mount of Olives, and that that the Lord, on that day, when the Lord is coming to, to reign over Jerusalem, he's going to come from the Mount of Olives. And where did Jesus come from? The Mount of Olives. From east of the city, Jesus came from east of Jerusalem to come into Jerusalem it's pointing people towards Zechariah and the things that that prophet says and we continue on in chapter 14 and we get to verses 16 to 21 and let me see if I can quickly read that it says then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king the Lord Almighty and to celebrate the feast of tabernacles uh, let me actually pause right there in the, in the Zechariah text because it talks about that there's all these nations that had gathered Jerusalem and the, and the point that all the nations originally came to Jerusalem was to like plunder the city and to take control of it but then the Lord shows up and comes from the Mount of Olives and comes into Jerusalem and retakes the city and then all the people that were there that were there to attack Jerusalem that were there as enemies start to go back to Jerusalem year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty. So when Jesus comes into town, when the Messiah comes into town, it transforms things and the people that are there that are enemies of Jerusalem, that are there to attack Jerusalem, people like, I don't know, the Roman Empire, those people come to see who the Messiah is. They come to see who God is. And from that point on, they worship God and come to the city to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the cool thing about the Feast of Tabernacles is it's, that's the feast where you, you gather around and you wave palm fronds. It's, it, it, in Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. 
you wave palm fronds, and you shout Hosanna. And so that's the thing that I think that the people, the crowds that are gathered in Jerusalem, and they see Jesus coming from the east riding on a donkey, and they immediately catch it, and they say, he's doing Zechariah. And if he's doing Zechariah, that means that we need to be celebrating like it's Sukkot. And so let's bust out some palm fronds, and, and let's start shouting Hosanna. And this is what it looks like when God shows up. This is how we're supposed to welcome him into the city. We celebrate like they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This is what the crowd is doing. They say, hey, hey, Jesus, we, we catch you what you're throwing down. We get your reference. You want us to think Zechariah, and so we'll worship God like this is Zechariah. Because what else happens besides the Feast of Tabernacles that they celebrate? Verse 17 from Zechariah 14. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's a little bit of the warning. And so the people were like, hey, if we don't celebrate here when God shows up in this way, we're not going to get rain. That's kind of important. Let's do the palm fronds thing. On that day, verse 20, on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bulls in front of the altar. That also says that after all of this celebrating has happened from the people that are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, that are waving their palm fronds and yelling Hosanna, the next thing that happens is they will go up to the altar. And in Matthew, the very next story that happens is when Jesus goes into the temple. They go to the altar next. It's, it's even more contextual reasons to say Jesus, when he shows up, he says, I want you people thinking about Zechariah. I want you to think about what it's what it looks like when when the messiah rides in on a donkey and when the messiah comes to town and all the people start celebrating the feast of tabernacles they start waving the palm, palm fronds they start shouting hosanna so one of the things that's interesting about this story of the triumphal entry is is not only are palm fronds a uh, significance of of sukkot of that festival of the feast of the tabernacle they're a part of that aspect but there's also another thing that happens culturally with palm fronds. See, palm fronds become symbolic in and around Jerusalem. They're symbolic of a group that's known as the Zealots. The group that is known for trying to get rebellion going in and around Jerusalem. They're the group that has these pretty important battles against the Roman Empire in the process of trying to kick the Romans out of Israel. They use palm fronds as their simple. Eventually, in, in actually the entirety of the Roman Empire, but especially in and around Israel, waving a palm frond was actually a crucifiable offense. They would kill you for waving a palm frond because it essentially was expressing, it was a treasonous act. You were saying, we want to kick Rome out of here. We want a rebellion. That's what it meant to wave a palm frond. Now, it maybe hasn't gotten to that point yet when Jesus showed up. I don't know exactly when that law was enacted in Rome, in the Roman Empire. 
but there's still definitely that element. There's enough that's been happening, enough that's been signified by palm fronds as a symbol that those ideas are already kind of present in people's minds. And so when they're waving palm fronds, shouting Hosanna, not only are they doing Sukkot, they're also thinking about rebellion. And the thing about Jesus coming in to Jerusalem, coming in as a king, riding on a donkey, according to Zechariah, is, is this crowd is latching onto this idea of, is this the guy? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one who comes in and kicks out all the Romans? Because Pilate's in town right now because it's Passover. So is he going to come and is he going to just like start a revolution and we can kick Pilate out while he's in our very backyard in our city? Oh man, is this what's happening? Now, the Matthew text just kind of ends of the story and saying people are like, so who's this guy? And they're like, it's, it's Jesus. It's this prophet from Galilee. But they're trying to go, but is this the Messiah guy? Is this the starts a revolution guy? And I'd say even at this point, the disciples have been wrestling with this idea. We, we know who Jesus is. Peter even says, you're the Messiah. But they still haven't figured out exactly what that means. And I think it's easy for them. They want to latch onto the idea of a revolution, of a rebellion, that they want Rome gone. And so that's a really hard thing for the disciples to drop. It's a really hard thing for the crowds to drop. And something they just want to latch onto. So something that's not present in the Matthew account that we find in the Luke account is Jesus' response to this. And, and so in Luke 19, uh, verse 41 and onward, it, it talks about Jesus' response to them waving palm fronds, to them shouting Hosanna, to them recognizing what he was trying to point to with Zechariah, is them still failing to see what it means for the Messiah to be coming to Jerusalem. And so Jesus weeps. There's a few places where we see Jesus crying uh, mentioned directly in Scripture. Uh, a lot of people like to reference the John 11:35 because it's like the shortest verse in the Bible where it says Jesus wept. And that's over his friend Lazarus who's passed away. But Jesus also weeps over Jerusalem, over, over the failure of Jerusalem to recognize what he is truly doing And so 1941 says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time. Of God's coming to you. See, Jesus is saddened because he's he's seen what the people in Jerusalem want. They want a revolution. They want to kick the Romans out. They're, they want bloodshed. They want rebellion to take hold, a revolution to spill over. And this makes Jesus weep. And it's not because they desire Rome to be gone. Jesus knows what Rome represents, what Rome 
has done. I, I think he's not a fan of Rome, of the Roman Empire, and what it's done to the Jewish people. But he's weeping over how the Jews are probably going to respond and how it's going to wreck them and cause more violence to come upon them instead of the peace that his kingdom is really bringing. Because when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he comes to die. To die for everyone. To be put on the cross to take up sins and to wipe things clean and to bring peace instead of bloodshed. He sheds his own blood so that we don't have to endure bloodshed. He comes to bring peace. He's a king and he's ushering in a kingdom, but it's a kingdom that doesn't look like what these crowds think it's going to look like, that doesn't look like even what his disciples at this stage think it's going to look like. It's a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of self-sacrifice. It's a kingdom that lays down one's rights for the sake of others so they can come to know who Jesus is, so they can come to experience Jesus' love, so they can see that God is different than all the other gods in these ancient worlds, different than all the Roman gods who just seek blood and vengeance and and they want people to worship them through, through sacrifice. Um, and many of those gods through child sacrifice. That's not the kingdom that Jesus ushers in. It's not a kingdom of power and, and authority. It's not a kingdom using methods of oppression and violence. That's not what Jesus is ushering in. To go back to the Matthew text, there's something interesting that maybe you caught in Matthew 19. And it's when they bring forward the donkey and, and Jesus instructs them to go get it and they go get a donkey. And it says the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Now, I'm pretty sure Jesus isn't riding two donkeys, a donkey and a colt, which is, you know, full of a donkey into Jerusalem. He's just riding on one. Why are there two? There's other places throughout Matthew's gospel where he has two demoniacs that that people that have demons and, and Jesus drives the demons out uh, of them. But in other places where those narratives are, are shared, there's only one demon-possessed man. Or there's a place where Jesus heals two blind men in Matthew, but in, in other texts, there's only one blind man that Jesus heals. Matthew keeps using two characters where a lot of other stories only have one. And I think the reason that, that Matthew does that, and it's actually a technique that was used in literature at this time, is that they'll use two in place of one because they're trying to invite you, the reader, into the story. That second demon-possessed guy, that second blind man, that second donkey is the character that represents the audience. And it's inviting you into this story. And so you've been invited to ride with Jesus, to ride into his kingdom, a kingdom that's built on different values, a kingdom that's built on, on peace and loving 
and generosity and radical hospitality and all these kind of things that Jesus represents throughout his teachings in the book of Matthew. A kingdom that is for everyone, a kingdom that notices the outsider. This is the story, this is the kingdom that we've been invited to participate in. And it looks nothing like the kingdom that Pilate's bringing from the other side of Jerusalem. This is not the Roman kingdom, the Roman Empire. This is not the kingdom that grasps for power and authority and uses whatever means necessary to get them. So let's look around in our own lives and make sure that the things we are doing aligns with the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Jesus brought when he came to earth, the throne that he ascended to, not by taking power, not by oppressing others, but by dying on a cross for us. That's the kingdom that we're called to. Hey, thanks for spending time with us today. If you have any questions about what you heard or any interest in learning more about CCF in Iowa, then please email us at ccf.uiowa at gmail.com and we would love to get you connected.